Today on the podcast, we head to the Big Apple to talk about the way it levies out property taxes, and we learn why some people say these Big Apple property tax rules are rotten. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So no tax system, whether local, federal, or global, is totally 100% rational and fair. But some make a lot less sense than others. And today we're going to talk about a system that a lot of people say makes little to no sense. New York City. Spiraling costs. 900 square foot apartments paying more in taxes than single family homes. How does this happen? The way the system works is, is a bit complicated. That's a clip from a video by my colleagues here at Bloomberg Law, Andrew Satter and Donna Borak. They just finished a big project looking into this, and they found that the property tax bill for a huge brownstone in Brooklyn is minuscule compared to a Staten Island co-op that's the size of the brownstone's living room. What's going on here? I spoke to Andrew and Donna about their project and what they found, and Donna says it all started in the early 1980s. That's when the New York State Legislature passed a bill that formalized the way Gotham's real estate gets taxed. So Albany, back in the 1980s, in 1981, crafted um, this law that basically created the structure for the property tax system in New York City. And I think it's fair to say that from day one, everyone realized that the system that they had created was inequitable and broken and dysfunctional. What's happened here in the last four decades is that it's needed an overhaul. Um, And every city leader has acknowledged the fact that something has to be done here, but eventually has kicked the can down the road when it comes to reform. So the law that was created in 1981 really instituted a structure that created a system of winners and losers. So what that means politically is that any fix to the system means taking away benefits from one constituency and then handing it off to another meaning that someone's going to pay less while another person is going to pay more. And it very well might be that wealthier single-family homeowners, the ones that are living in these gorgeous brownstones in Brooklyn, are going to be the ones that might have to have pay higher tax bills. And they've kind of gotten used to very nice, low tax bills over the years. And um, Andrew, my colleague here, can help um, explain why that is. Yeah, so as, as Don explained, the system was really designed um, to sort of limit the taxes that people who own one, two, three family homes would have to pay relative to everyone else. So they did this um, by creating this kind of you know, complicated, as, you know, as most tax systems are, um, process where they put a limit for single family homes, one to three family homes, that it can, the assessed value can only go up 6% every year. So that if, you're, if your assessed value can only go up by a little bit every year, and that's what you're taxed on, then your taxes as a result can also go, only go up by you know, a little bit every year. Whereas everybody else in the city, you know, apartment uh, re- renters, um, co-op owners, condo owners, commercial real estate, there's really no limit on how much their assessed value can go up. And I think where this really kind of like the, the example that crystallized it for me was we looked at this, these two examples. There was a, this 72-unit um, co-op in Staten Island, which was worth somewhere around $7 million. And then there was this beautiful, you know, single-family home brownstone 
in um, Tony Park Slope, Brooklyn, which was worth somewhere around $5 million. So, you know, you would think that the taxes for those would be roughly the same, $5 million, $7 million. But in fact, the, the people who live in the co-op, their tax rate is almost 2,000% more than the single-family homeowners. So that's like kind of gives you a sense of the disparity that you can see in the system. Wow. Um, so Donna, I want to talk about why New York State is unique compared to other states, because there are a lot of states that have limits on how high property taxes can go. The most inf- infamous one, I would, would think, would be California's Proposition 13. A lot of people know that and was actually uh, passed around the same time that uh, this New York law was passed. What makes New York unique, though, that leads to all these sort of wacky outcomes like Andrew was just talking about where, you know, one building can have 2000 percent more in taxes than another one? Well, there are a couple of factors here, one being that Albany actually created the property tax system that regulates how New York City does it. So New York City itself isn't really um, controlling the purse strings, if you will, in terms of how all of this is implemented. So that's step one, even though there are some that argue that New York City could probably do a little bit more um, without the legislature um, intervening. The second thing is that most cities don't have a four-class system. They usually have a two-class system where you've got residential and commercial, and here you've got four. Yeah, so we have uh, four classes. What are those four classes? So we've got class one, which is single, two, and three family homes. Um, You've got in your second class, rentals, co-ops, and condos. Um, The third class is utilities, and class four are commercial properties. Right, and so I guess the what what's we're really talking about here is the difference between class one and class two. You know, the the brownstones in class one and the the co-ops in class two, right? Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, like Andrew talked about, like there are protections in the system that were created in order to protect those class one homeowners, um, and what many will consider are the voters, right? And so you don't really want to hurt the people that are going to vote for you um, in the next uh, political cycle. But for renters and certain co-op buildings and condos, and there are limits in terms of whether it's over 10, 10 units in a co-op or um, in condo buildings, like they're the ones that end up getting most impacted. So beyond just the sort of inequity that this two-class system, class one and class two, has created, uh, it sounds like it's also just really, really complicated for people living in New York City to figure out what they owe in property taxes. I mean, you had some amazing anecdotes about people who, you know, one person who was living by Coney Island where they you know, we're told at the closing that their property taxes would be one thing. And then as it turned out, it was more than double that. Uh, and then another woman who, uh, you know, had part of her driveway classified as a commercial garage. And then there was also a series of other er- errors. And she ended up owing, you know, half a million dollars to the, to the city. What's going on there? Why is this so complicated? Yeah, so for this story, um, especially because the property tax system in New York City is so complex, we really, really wanted to show like the human impact here um, on some of the most vulnerable New Yorkers. So we spoke to senior citizens, immigrants, small business owners, New York government employees, like former city tax assessors, lawyers that had like been fighting these tax assessments. And we were able to kind of get about 200 um, separate pieces of testimony, right, from New Yorkers all over across the boroughs, um, Staten Island, Queens, Brooklyn, and Manhattan. And there were so many stories to tell here. 
we wanted those stories to kind of really showcase just how opaque and difficult the system is to navigate. And, you know, we, we've heard stories anecdotally of an immigrant family, like renting out a room to help pay for their property taxes, seniors that wrote in that said they couldn't even understand the paperwork they had to file, you know, young families that were cash strapped and worried about um, having to leave the city because they could no longer afford their property taxes. So it, What's so striking about um, so many of them is that they really just didn't understand the system that they were facing, and they couldn't understand the jargon um, that the agency had in these documents and why they were paying more than another co-op building across the street um, or why they were being compared to other buildings um, that were unlike them and why they were getting blindsided um, by these like super high tax bills. Like you mentioned Marlena and um, Jesse Gage, right? They bought this $2.3 million property um, in Sunset Park, you know, right next door to Coney Island, beautiful new construction. Um, and they had been anticipating that they were gonna pay about $12,000 a year, which was double what they were paying in their Crown Heights uh, townhouse. And then the next thing they knew, the assessors were coming and um, because it was new construction and there was this quirky loophole and they were not, you know, among the properties that had been built before 1981, they were getting reassessed and the city's finance department was going after them because they wanted them to pay a lot more in their taxes. The problem was that it had a ripple effect. So now their association dues were also going up. And so they were owing more than $40,000 a year something that they had not budgeted for. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to, you know, see uh, the amount when you're closing on um, the estimated taxes you'll have to pay and for that to be a little bit higher than expected, but more than double, it had, must have come as, as a, a shock to them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, they say outright, you know, had they known, you know, what it was going to be, um, they might not have bought the house to begin with. You know, it, to your point, I mean, you sort of poke around, you figure out what you're going to have to pay, you anticipate that taxes are going to go up incrementally every year. But when they make such a significant jump like that, even if you're someone um, that is financially established, still makes it incredibly challenging to own. So, uh, Andrew, you know, these are some really difficult stories to hear, you know, people who maybe have to sell and can't afford their house. But I mean, it's taxes. People, are, you know, nobody likes paying taxes, um, you know, but you have to pay them. Why does this matter? Like, why, why should I feel, uh, why should we feel uh, sympathy for someone who's buying a two plus million dollar house and now has a really high tax bill? No, it's a really good question. And it's, it's something that, you know, we asked ourselves a lot when we started looking at the story, because like you said, no, nobody likes paying taxes. Um, and property taxes in particular, you know, everybody's, we, we all have gripes with how our properties are assessed. But New York um, is sort of particularly egregious in both how the system's designed and the inequality and inequity um, that it sows. And I mean, there's just, there's just so many examples from the people we've talked about who just can't get answers and are frustrated by this, you know, opaque system that maybe has some sort of fix for them that they don't even know about and have to hire, you know, some really expensive high-priced lawyer just to even have a chance to possibly maybe um, get uh, an answer that might even, you know, might not even be in their favor. Um, this system really hits renters hard. 
uh, hits commercial property owners hard. Um, anybody who rents in this system, the, the property taxes are probably most likely passed down to you in your rent, and you don't even know that. So you can't really advocate for yourself. Yeah, I mean, to us, really, David, it really just showed how opaque and arbitrary the system really is. Um, There's no accountability in terms of how the Department of Finance does its work every year. And they are faced, you know, with a monumental task. They have to assess more than one million properties a year, and they often don't have the resources or the staffing to do um, the right job. And so mistakes get repeated and reinforced, and you wind up with tax bills that you can't understand. Um, what makes this even more of a conundrum is the fact that the the revenue that the city gets from property tax, which is more than you know 50%, you know, the city really needs this money. Like this is the city's piggy bank. And so when you're talking about trying to fix a system, you don't want to jeopardize that in any way possible. You know, the flip side of that is that this is a core economic issue and New York City is facing a housing crisis, um, a, a big affordability housing crisis. And so if you've got property taxes that are continuing to skyrocket that only amplify, you know, that problem, I mean, you're not going to have people being able to stay and live in the city. Um, and you need that because you need personal income tax and you need jobs and you need, you know, there, there are huge economic ramifications to all of this. So, and everyone that we spoke to acknowledged that like, yes, we know we, we have to pay taxes. We want to pay taxes. What we want to understand is why it is the way it is. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, they just haven't gotten answers. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask but are we reaching kind of a tipping point? Because I just think from a mathematical standpoint, if you have some houses that uh, have their assessed value can only go up by 6% a year, and then other properties, multifamily properties or commercial properties can go up an infinite amount a year, um, that the tax burden is going to be higher and higher and higher on those other properties. Are we getting to a certain point where the tax burden on commercial properties and on multifamily properties is getting so high that they become, you know, unsustainable? I think it's a really good question. Um, I mean, you're just seeing what's happening with commercial property right now, right, because of the pandemic, and you don't have right, remote right. workers coming in. And so that is depreciating their its value. And what does that have like tax, like property tax implications? And um, I don't know what happens next. I think that we're on an unsustainable path um, that needs to be fixed. And there are a lot of different pieces that need to be fixed. It's a matter of like, will there be enough political will, both in Albany and in New York City um, with Eric Adams to see this through? Let's briefly talk about uh, Mayor Eric Adams, as you mentioned. Uh, His predecessor, Bill de Blasio, uh, as you reported, had a plan to address this. Uh, He's not mayor anymore. Uh, Eric Adams is. Is Eric Adams going to pursue this the way that uh, Mayor de Blasio uh, did? Or is this something that's kind of uh, now going to be put on the shelf? Well, Eric Adams has said that he is going to make this a priority in his first year of his administration. Um, And his office let us know just in the course of reporting the story that like they're they're reviewing all property tax related um, issues and including tax lien sales. I know that that is something that um, Mayor Adams has been very vocal on. You know, he acknowledges that this is an unfair system. 
you know, having said that, you know, former Mayor Bill de Blasio also acknowledged that this was an unfair system. He campaigned on the fact of the the tale of two cities, right, that he was going to be the mayor that, like, addressed inequality issues, um, especially property tax reform, you know, some may say that, you know, COVID-19 really threw um, a monkey wrench in that process, but it also got incredibly dragged out. And, and the set of recommendations that, you know, the administration rolled out just days before leaving um, were old ideas, um, you know, critics would argue. Like, the, the, these were not fresh new ideas that really took a bite at, at the apple. And as you very well know, David, you know, when a new administration comes in, they're going to want to put their own stamp on things. And so in some ways, we might be going back to the drawing board um, and looking at ideas. And, you know, it's it's too soon to know. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz, with help from Greg Henderson. Our editor is Cheryl Sines. Our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. That's B as in Brooklyn Brownstone. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million, about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl Podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.